I went to a marvelous party. Christopher, this is only going to work if we speak one at a time. Fine, you first, Eric. From the Sunset Strip in beautiful West Hollywood, California, it's The Dinner Party Show, the internet's first live comedy variety show, with your hosts, New York Times best-selling authors, Christopher Rice. Now, there's actually a new study that confirms every other child you see on the street is a ghost. <laughs> and Eric Shaw Quinn. I don't want to talk too much, but... Okay, no, we're going to no, no. take up a collection for the stained glass window. Now we want the dirt. <laughs> Featuring reports from their largely unqualified staff of special correspondents. Sex is like Christmas. It's the not knowing what you're going to get that makes it exciting. New York is a giant trash island infested by has-been theater queens. If we're really serious about cutting federal spending, the biggest waste of public funds I can think of is Congress. Two snaps for Jesus! The Dinner Party Show. Everyone gets served. Tonight's live cast is streaming to you live and for free through the dinnerpartyshow.com and our free mobile app. And now, direct from the kitchen by way of the Get out of my office! It's your hosts, Christopher and Eric! Books. Should we keep them, or should we just replace them with photographs of Justin Bieber? Should we divide them into smaller and smaller digital files until they only cost a dime each, and your publisher still only gives you 12.5% of every sale? I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and here at The Dinner Party Show, books matter. That's why I'm using my book voice. It sounds like this. Do you hear it? This is my book voice. The voice I use when I'm talking about books. Because books matter. Or do they? Is it what's inside the binding that matters most? Or is it the binding itself? Or is it the method by which it's distributed to the consumer that matters more than anything? Or is it the ever-cheaper paper publishers are now using to print backlist titles on demand? You know, the kind that tears under your pen when you try to take notes in the margin and smells vaguely of old vinegar. These are just some of the questions we'll attempt to answer during the Dinner Party Show's Summer Book Festival. To examine the concerns of an industry laboring under these stresses and a craft plagued by great personal anxieties, we recently sat in on a panel at a local literary festival to see how some authors were holding up. And the answer is, oh dear. <laughs> Welcome to the first annual Dinner Party Show Festival of Books Authors panel. I'm your host, Honoria Rothrode, author of the Ladies' Home Companion Book of the Month alternate choice, Right or Wrong, spelled W-R-I-T-E or W-R-O-N-G for our listeners at home. Bit of a pun there. <laughs> it's a memoir of my time as a memoir editor at the now-defunct publishing house Libris Real. As you know, the Dinner Party Show was founded, if you will, by authors Christopher Rice and Eric Shawquin. It seems only fitting, then, that the Dinner Party Show take time to honor those people of letters, the progenitors of all forms of entertainment, the writer. Today, we have assembled five noteworthy authors who did not have anything else to do or a viable excuse why they could not appear on today's first Dinner Party Show Festival of Books Authors Panel. Our topic today is the state of publishing and the future of the writer. I'd like to ask each of our panelists to take a moment to introduce themselves 
to this time. Hi, yeah, I'm Ed Bench, memorista and author of the 12 book canon Minute by Minute, My Life as It Happened. I'm currently working on volume 13, which will include today's panel, so don't say anything you don't want to see in print. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, I don't think we need to worry too much about that happening, Ed. What is that supposed to mean? Decorum, authors, decorum. It means, Ed, that we can all speak freely as no one is likely to get through volume one of your memoir. Oh. Really? Well, we can't all have been married to someone famous and successful enough to support our delusional career as a least-selling mystery author. Decorum! Let's stick to introduction, <laughs> shall we? I'm Ellie Bang, author of the conundrum award-winning Bang Bang LaRue Mystery Erotica series. I'll be signing my most recent in the Bang Bang Ofra, Fifty Shades of Dead, for people who actually buy the new book. And no, I will not be signing copies of my ill-advised erotic photo spread in Slash Fiction Fancier's magazine. Who knew that's what that meant, and why would they have a magazine? Uh, the only mystery with you, I Ellie, got your is... mystery right here, Ed. Moving on. I'm Butchlin. Heights, author of A Girl's Guide, the easy step-by-step -step handbook for those of us who've had enough of men. And I'm Bastian Montrose, author of Decorating with Books, a DIY coffee table book on finding some use for all the attractive but otherwise useless ink and paper books that people insist on sneaking into gift bags and which lazy gift givers embarrass you into keeping by gift wrapping them and bringing them to your parties. Is that my 12-volume set on the cover of your book? <laughs> yes. I glued them together, hollowed them out, and made them into a planter. Oh, Ed, you've no one to blame but yourself. They were already full of fertilizer, so it was kind of your idea to begin with. Thank you, panel. Our first question today is, what is the impact of the e-publishing revolution on your work and career? Let's start with you, Ellie. You've already had so much to say today. Sounds like a remark, Anoria. You get one for free, babe. <clears throat> I got my start in e-publishing. And your finish. Clever, Ed. Save it for your book. Oh, wait. I guess it's already in there. I guess you're a big fan of e-publishing, too, huh, Ed? I mean, you can just tweet your every bowel movement and people can ignore you in a whole new medium. Memoir is the soul of modern publishing. Which is dying, Ed, so that makes you more of an assassin than a memoirista. Well, my book is about how to recycle all these old paper and glue mildew collectors that e-polishing has rendered obsolete. Do you even know what irony means, Sebastian? It's Bastion, not Sebastian. I think that our judges will accept that as a no. Honoria? This discussion is- Publishing is dying. Pretty soon writers will vanish and they'll be as useless as the men who use their stranglehold on information to skew the narrative toward a history dominated by their patriarchal agenda. Well, Butchlin, that's a pretty strong pronouncement. You think that technology will render writers as obsolete as factory workers and typesetters? I think it's that kind of defeatist attitude that really threatens the profession. <laughs> I think that saying the end of publishing is a threat to writers is like saying that the end of ox carts is the end of travelers. Homer didn't even write anything down, and that's turned out pretty well for him. Writers without publishing is like fish without bicycles. Hey! Sorry, Butch. Just borrowing your saggy feminist cliche. You can have it back now. Oh, oh my dear. Decorum, ladies. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Takes one to know one. I've got an exciting new addition for your next volume, Ed. What the hell? Not the folding chairs. They're rented. Shut up, lady windbag. <gasps> well, I never. That would explain a lot. Now, Butchlin, how about an autographed copy of my fist? Uh, oh, it's on, bitch. I'll kill you. Stop that right now. All of you. Well, uh, this is what happens when you let the lesbians... Don't you dare. Okay, that's it. Uh, uh, that'll... Oh, no biting. Philistine. Bitch. 
This is a literary festival. Fellas? Which one is fellas? Young lady, you have made a mockery of this panel. Who are you calling a lady? Lady. Are you kidding? This is the first interesting author panel I've ever been on. Uh, that ought to keep you interested. Don't the women did kill I'm just going to go out. This has been the first annual dinner party show, Festival of Books, Authors Panel. Genre. What do we mean when we say genre? The term is often used to dismiss a certain type of book as being less than literary or not quite boring enough to be shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Is it a word we use to describe stories with a certain, perhaps, unnatural degree of closure? Their endings might not always be happy, but they bring with them a sense of comforting resolution. The Dinner Party Show's Book Festival brings you a selection of recent audiobook bestsellers that sample a variety of popular fiction genres so that you may answer these questions for yourself. keeping with the Dinner Party Show's commitment to celebrating literacy and the written word, we bring you an exclusive excerpt from one of this week's best-selling audiobook titles, The Chinaman Conspiracy, by New York Times best-selling novelist and recently declassified former head of the custodial staff for the Central Intelligence Agency, Robert Neville Worthington. Chapter 1, East of Langley, Virginia. 11.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Chase Foxhunt III powered the Mojave Brown 2011 Porsche Panamera with 4.8-liter displacement and 550 horsepower and a compression ratio of 10.5 to 1 down the leafy dark highway just east of Langley, Virginia, which is where the CIA is. It had been just 48 hours since he had received the mysterious email on his Dell Precision M6500 laptop computer with an Intel Core i7 processor and a matte LCD display with LED backlight voted four and a half out of five stars by PC World magazine. The email was blunt and to the point. The Chinamen are at it again, it read in the sans-serif 16-point font to which he had adjusted his email text preferences. Surely the author of the email, who was identified only as Red Herring, knew that Chase Fox Hunt had just the previous year rescued the faces and fingers of countless congressional representatives from a series of Al-Qaeda-rigged juicers which had been placed by terrorist moles in break rooms throughout the Capitol. The mysterious sender of the mysterious email had asked Chase to meet him at an isolated location on an isolated road. No other information was provided. So now Chase was free to look in the rearview mirror and admire his absolutely not gay-looking Hugo Boss suit, which was from the Boss Selection tailored line, crafted using classic full-canvas techniques and loose interlinings of exquisite camel and horsehair. But before his strange meeting with the strange sender of the strange email, Chase needed a good drink. And that's why he pulled over at an Exxon where he hoped to find a tab, first introduced as a diet drink in 1963 and now largely discontinued but available in some gas stations and grocery stores in 12-ounce cans that are sold in either 12-packs or 6-packs. While tab sales have been dwarfed by those of Diet Coke, almost 3 million cases a year are still produced. If the Chinamen, whoever they were, were truly at it again, Chase Hunt needed to enjoy a classic diet drink before rising to defeat their Chinaness.
in keeping with the Dinner Party Show's commitment to celebrating literacy and the written word, we bring you an exclusive excerpt from one of this week's best-selling audiobook titles, the fantasy epic Jorgon Rising, the Tardakian Prophecy, Book 17 in the Urethromycin Cycle, started by the late beloved master of fantasy, D.N.R. Chokehold. This latest installment in his award-winning Perpetual series was authored by an eclectic gathering of Comic-Con attendees who consume nothing but Red Bull for three days in a row. Jorgon Tardakian, son of Urgid, ah, withdrew his steel sword from its scabbard lined in Garushian fur and hacked deliberately at the tangles of Elder Skrulian vine, which obscured his soon-to-be-expansive view of the third northeastern quadrant's border of the glittering kingdom of Surgit Tradition. He was a fat and jolly Blachna Vidya, descended proudly from a long line of beloved Japolines, who spent most of their harsh winters enjoying strong drink and great heaping platters of daddly upanada snog. Had it not been for the sudden illumination of the 17th preserved runestone of the golden maple's frozen trunk, he would never have left his homeland of beautiful, pristine lakes and gentle, diddly wapikons. But in his family, honor was all, and so he had set out on an interminable journey which would take him at least seven more 2,000-page novels to complete. His only accompaniment since the end of the last novel had been the wisps of clouds high above the treetops and the ever-sinking yet circuitous path of the third convulsing moon of Darwal. He rifled through his idly-skinned satchel in search of the 17th preserved runestone of the golden maple's frozen trunk. This time, when his fingers closed around the stone in question, the trees about him were animated by a sudden, strange magic, their leaves and branches reshaping into characters sure to provide welcome exposition and hopefully a glossary of sorts. And even though no tree had done anything of the kind on any page of the previous 17 novels in this series, Jorgen Tardakian was sure that the fans of his incessant adventures were sure to pretend as if this scene made utter sense, going so far as to comb through his exploits for little scraps of information which could, after enough weed, be interpreted as substantial foreshadowing of this highly convenient turn of events. Speak to me, suddenly animated trees, Jorgen called to the forest, arms thrown out, the light of the Darwal's convulsing third moon filtering down through the dancing branches onto the runestone he clutched in one fist, which, if you haven't been paying attention, is the 17th preserved runestone of the Golden Maple's frozen trunk. But don't worry, we'll remind you of this dozens of times in the next ten chapters it will take for Jorgon to reach the glittering kingdom that only appears to be a half-day's walk away. Dinner Party Show's commitment to celebrating literacy and the written word, we bring you an exclusive excerpt from one of this week's best-selling audiobook titles, the latest hit from mega-best-selling writer James P. Rubicon, author of 16 novels per year since 1995, some of which he actually wrote himself. His latest novel is the thrilling conclusion to his best-selling trilogy, a trilogy that began earlier this year with the number one hit, Smell the Darkness. It was followed up a month later by its sequel, Taste the Darkness. And now we have the thrilling conclusion. Are you sure that was darkness? Chapter 613. Oh my God! Lydia Washington, the sympathetic black detective, cried at the top of her lungs. The corpse of the new bride and groom lay face down on their wedding bed, their faces covered in piles and piles of pudding. Oh my God! Lydia thought in italics. Who would have thought something as sweet and innocent? 
innocent as pudding could be used to do something as horrible as kill a bride and groom on their wedding night while their two puppies were leashed to a chair and forced to watch. The irony here is so incredible and grotesque I can't help thinking about it in italics. Chapter Chapter 614, Lydia Washington, who remained sympathetic and black and hardworking, crept closer to the bed, where the bride and groom had been suffocated with pudding, which is normally a dessert popular with children, but here had been used to murder innocent people. She was almost to the bed. Chapter 615. Lydia was still not quite to the bed, but her gun was raised, and the bride and groom were still dead from pudding before her in the very, very nice hotel suite on the top floor of the very expensive hotel that only murder victims and bad people could afford a room in. What's that strange ticking sound, Lydia thought in italics. Chapter 616. Lydia turned to look at the frightened puppies, still leashed to a chair where they had been forced to watch their owners be drowned in pudding. Oh no! Oh mama! Save me! She thought loudly. Not the puppies! Sweet Jesus, Lordy mercy, not the puppies! Chapter 617, The Puppies Exploded, one after the other, filling the very nice hotel room with dog fur and chaos and fear. Lydia, still sympathetic and black, fell through the shattering hotel room window and into the night air, thinking of her dead father, who had been a very earnest black reverend who had taught her everything she knew, including how to meet Jesus. Chapter 618. Lydia felt a tug on her hand and looked up to see the pilot of a news helicopter, who also happened to be her ex-husband. He was holding her by one wrist as she dangled high above the big bad city of big buildings. You all right, baby? He asked her. She wasn't sure what to say. They hadn't seen each other since the first installment in this trilogy, when their different careers had caused them to have the same three-paragraph fight over and over and over again. Also, she was hanging from a helicopter over a big city, which didn't seem like the best place to discuss her failed marriage. Oh, girl, she thought to herself in an uncharacteristically urban tone she hadn't used for most of the novel. You sure know how to pick them. The fact that her ex-husband had just rescued her from falling 30 stories to her death seemed completely lost on her. But this chapter is already too long, and the ghostwriter's kind of straying from the outline here because he's had some wine. So, let's bring this one back in for a landing before the reader notices, which the reader probably won't, because if they started reading this when they boarded in New York, the pilot's probably giving the landing announcement for LAX by now. Chapter 619. Lydia's reporter ex-husband, who knew how to fly helicopters, pulled his ex-wife, with whom he often used to fight, into the helicopter, which was very loud and windy and hovering very high above the burning hotel that had been set aflame by bombs placed inside of puppies. Because he was a black character, and this was a novel written by a pandering rich white guy, her husband's name was DeAndre Tyrone LaMarcus Washington. What the hell happened inside of that giant burning hotel, DeAndre Tyrone LaMarcus Washington yelled. He killed them, Lydia gasped. He killed them with pudding and he forced their puppies to watch. And then he placed bombs inside the puppies and blew it all to hell, goddammit. The pudding killer? The one who kills school children but only if they're wearing a uniform? No, that was the last novel, DeAndre Tyrone LaMarcus. Oh, the one who ties up the owners of seafood restaurants and dumps them in their lobster tanks so that the lobsters will gnaw them to death? That was the first novel. God damn it. Focus, DeAndre Tyrone LaMarcus. The one who kills newlyweds? That's the one. The pudding killer. But now he's changed his M.O. and you know what that means, don't you? He'll be harder to catch? 
No, we'll have to change his nickname back at the station. And if there's one thing cops hate more than anything, it's changing a psycho's nickname. And now, in keeping with the dinner party show's tradition of celebrating literacy and the written word, we bring you an excerpt from one of this week's best-selling audiobook titles, the latest release from multiple Edgar Award-winning mystery writer Edward Lee Hopkins' Bruce Feather. The Los Angeles Review of Books describes Bruce Feather as a cross between Cormac McCarthy and that uncle you can never get to stop talking about Vietnam. His latest book is called The Ever-Breaking Heart of the Fallen Angels. It's his 19th novel featuring Jimmy Assaker. I awoke to the sight of lions tearing the flesh from a gazelle. I watched in horror as the gazelle's blood flowed, red and unstoppable as the baby's insides. The lion's eyes a-twinkle with primal ferocity and raw appetite, delighted in the gnashing of flesh and bone which they had initiated in the morning light of a forsaken dawn. I was powerless to stop them, powerless once again to stop the slaughter, just as I had been powerless to stop the murder of Suzelle Latrell a week before. But I couldn't tear my eyes away from the hot red commerce of death and destruction, which often led me to commit acts of inexplicable, plot-advancing violence against my adversaries. Then my wife walked in and changed the channel to the Today Show. I never saw what happened to the gazelle, but I'm pretty sure it was toast. You gotta ride and give me some milk, Jimmy Assaker. I couldn't bring myself to tell my wife that the sight of milk's inexorable white flow always reminded me of a man named Hyatt Dirt Dauber, who I'd shot through the heart with an Apache crossbow when I caught him fornicating with a young prostitute girl whose parents had been trampled by wild elk when she was five years old. Hyatt was a sick bastard who liked to drink milk while he had sex with young prostitutes. Are you going to give me some milk or not, Jimmy? I agreed to my wife's intrusive request, if only because it allowed me to walk for several blocks, focusing on every atrocity I had ever witnessed or heard tell of in my lifetime. But eventually, my thoughts of the Titanic and the Jonestown Massacre coalesced around an image of Suzelle Luttrell that had run in our local paper the week before. She was a sweet, pretty girl, as all murdered girls are. Before her death, she had been stripped naked and her clothes had been strung from telephone lines all over town before being set aflame by her killer in five different locations. Her only son was missing, presumably sold into white slavery, and someone had released wild dogs into her home where they had urinated over every inch of her small, humble house before someone had driven a Mack truck through it. It was a hell of a lot of trouble to go through to kill a girl who worked the counter at Walgreens, but the police didn't have any leads. They only really cared about all the burning clothes on telephone lines because that had shut down a few roads and people in small towns hate that. I tried to focus on what I knew about Suzelle as I walked to the grocery store, but the sounds of passing cars were like fallen angels being dragged behind trucks by chains through forests of stinging nettles while trained seals barked nearby because they were getting tased by a Nazi stormtrooper. Suzelle Luttrell, sweet, innocent, now her son was missing, her house a ruin that smelled of dog urine and diesel fuel, and my tired behind was going to the grocery store to get some milk because my wife didn't want to hear me complain about another terrible hangover. In the grocery store, I began to weep uncontrollably at the sight of a little girl who would have looked just like Suzelle Luttrell if she'd been five feet taller and about ten years older and had corn silk blonde hair instead of short brown hair and a page boy cut. Still, the time it took me to weep was also the time I needed to remember where the milk was. I was wandering down the aisle in the direction of where I thought the milk should be when I felt movement on the back of my neck. I spun on my attacker. Images of tracer fire and jungle fields bathed in Agent Orange lit up my vision. Even though I'm 65 and subsist entirely on a diet of chili con carne and Jack Daniels, I use several jujitsu moves to land my attacker flat on his back on a pile of canned peas. 
I saw, to my shame, that it was one of the checkout kids, fresh-faced and innocent, and obviously eager to find out if this old man had been lost. I almost apologized before I realized it had been almost half a chapter before I'd done something rash and reckless as a result of a flashback to Vietnam. And so I continued on, weeping to find the milk. The relationship between literature and Hollywood has always been a strange one, if by strange you mean parasitic and depraved. Bad things happen to good writers who go to Hollywood. Witness the alcoholic declines of F. Scott Fitzgerald and William Faulkner. Here in a recent installment of our special series, World's Worst Pitch Meeting, we hear what becomes of a cherished children's book author once she heads a little too far west. Let's take a listen, shall we? For all the terrible films Hollywood puts out every year, there are literally hundreds of thousands of awful movie ideas Hollywood executives don't buy. In order to protect their legacy, some of the film industry's top producers have provided us with secret recordings of some of the worst pitch meetings they've ever been forced to sit through. That's why we call this series World's Worst Pitch Meeting. Here's another installment. You, you know, normally I don't like to start pitch meetings off this way, but I've just got to gush for a few seconds here and tell you what a fan I am of all of your novels. I, I, I was just a boy when my mother introduced me to your work, and I, you took me to another world is what you did, and I, I hope we can find something to work on so we can go to another world together. Well, aren't you just a dear? What a dear thing of you to say, young man. I, I often fear the world has forgotten my little tales for children, and then every now and then I come across someone as kind and generous as you, someone who reminds me that my little stories did indeed have an impact. Absolutely. I truly appreciate you flying in from London for this oh. meeting. Your agent says you have all sorts of ideas we can talk through today, and I can't wait. It'll be a pleasure just to hear them. Oh, how dear you are. How very dear. Yes, well, you know, I've always taken classic children's fairy tales and tried to reimagine them for new generations of readers, while, of course, maintaining what was precious and integral about them to begin with. Fairy tales are reservoirs of meaning in and of themselves, and they never run dry. They just sort of continue to produce and pump out meaning over the years. But this time, this time, mind you, I'd like to add a bit of a twist to a classic tale. Excellent. Hollywood loves a twist. But will they love a twist in Cinderella? Are you kidding? Hollywood loves a Cinderella story. Oh, good, good. For in this Cinderella story, things are going to be a bit different. You see, in my version, I ask, what if she did make it back in time? What if the carriage never turned back into a pumpkin and her beautiful gowns never turned back into rags? What if it was all hers to keep without any need to try on some stupid glass slipper in front of her ugly stepsisters? What if upon realizing all of these dazzling riches were hers to keep forever, Cinderella turned to the prince next to her and said, fuck you, prince, I'm off to have all the cock in London. I've timed things well and it's time to get shagged hard. Oh, my God, I thought we were going to do something for kids. Oh, bloody children. My whole life has been about the children. It's time the parents had a bit of fun, don't you think? Have you read this E.L. James? I was reading her on the flight over, and she's a great deal of fun. Why don't we bring her in and see if she wants to work on this, too? We could add a bit of groping and clamping and pinching and twisting and all those tasty bits. What do you think? We could even throw in the little mice for a real bit of fun. What do you think? They could just run Everywhere, couldn't they? You want to do a pornographic version of Cinderella? Well, Anne Rice already has the Sleeping Beauty thing locked up. And it's not so much pornography as much as it's about, you know, fuck the prince. Well, more importantly, fuck the prince and then be done with the prince and move on to another prince. Because you see, what I haven't told all those little kiddies in my stories over the years is that the prince and the princess, they both get... Old, you see. 
They both get very, very old if you keep them around. One day it's all ball gowns and carriages, and then the next you turn around and there's this great heap of flesh lying in the bed next to you smelling of cod. We should all have a bit of fun, is what I'm trying to say. We should all have a bit of fun while we can. That's the premise, if you will. Perhaps it's even the title. A bit of fun, that's what you want to call it? Or perhaps Cinderella has a bit of fun, or Cinderella's fun, or perhaps, despite what you've heard, Cinderella has a lot of uh, fun. It sounds like a porn film to me. Oh, I'm an sorry. American is suddenly going to have a fit of glass, is he? You know, this would probably go better with some cocaine. Do you have any? I'm told Hollywood is just stuffed with cocaine. what? Why don't we take a little break and I'll have my assistant Hannah take you on a tour of the lot and then by the time you get back I will have managed to come to terms with the fact that I just got pitched a porn film by my favorite children's book author. Such a fragile nation you are. No wonder you all need so many guys. Hannah! How about that tour, huh? Before I have a breakdown in here. Oh, hello. (laughs) Hannah, aren't you a hot little number? How about a little girl on girl while he watches? Okay, that's enough. Thank you for coming, really. Thanks. Fuck the prince, indeed. For 50 years, Oliver and Rowe has brought you some of the finest works of American literature. Our authors include world leaders and multiple Pulitzer and Nobel Prize winners. Now, in recognition of the changing landscape of publishing, Oliver and Rowe has selected the very best works of these independent authors who have made a distinguished and profitable name for themselves in the new digital marketplace. We're bringing you exclusive print editions of their most popular works with our new imprint, Trailblazer Books. And it all begins this month with Dark Sex, The Adventure Begins. When divorcee Sheila Bowser is forced to start a dog-walking business after her husband abandons her, she falls under the spell of a particularly pugnacious St. Bernard with a fetish for mature women and a penchant for standing upright. Romantic antics ensue in dog sex. The adventure begins, the first in a 76-part series. And next month, we bring Girl Scout Beetlejuice Jungle Party. When their chartered jet crashes in the Amazon rainforest, this nubile young Girl Scout troop finds themselves deliciously menaced by a handsome, insect-like creature who produces a very sweet nectar. Who will be the first to take a drink at the Girl Scout Beetlejuice Jungle Party? This special omnibus edition includes all 600 digital installments. And coming this fall, Dalai Lama Mama, sex monster of the Himalayas. When Chinese troops menace the Himalaya hideaway of one of the world's foremost spiritual leaders, the Dalai Lama is forced to stop them the only way he knows how. With sex, Namaste has never been so gay. Trailblazer books from Oliver and Rowe, bringing you the best works from writers who blew past the gatekeepers so they could blow whoever and whatever they felt like. It all begins this month at one of the last remaining bookstores in your city. And you know, Amazon. The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Sacred Cows Roasted Daily. Women. It's common knowledge they make up the majority of readers and book buyers. But how are they represented in popular works of fiction? The Dinner Party Show Summer Book Festival brings you a selection of some recent best-selling audiobooks that answer this very question. And now, in keeping with the Dinner Party Show's commitment to celebrating literacy and the written word, we bring you an exclusive excerpt from one of this week's best-selling audiobook titles, The Interminable Snowman, by New York Times best-selling novelist and former editor-in-chief of the only Swedish magazine dedicated to covering the interior designs of homes owned by convicted pedophiles, Lusarg Fossen. Chapter 1 
Elsabetia Frusen Glasen Wagen cross the Ugenbüdelogen Valgusen Bridge, thinking as usual of her near mutilation at the hands of a mad gang of traffic police who patrolled the Verden Lucan shooting tollway. It was hard so often to remember being almost mutilated. So hard sometimes she would pull her car over to the side of the road, bring two handfuls of snow to her face, and scream into them until all of the snow had melted. This was why she owned seven different knives, which she sometimes used to carve the names of the men who had almost mutilated her on the parts of her skin where she had not already been almost mutilated already. She did not know what it felt like to laugh or smile, and the last man who had asked her to smile had been trying to drown her in a toilet bowl for no good reason. So she had vowed never to smile again. And she hated clowns now, because the man who had tried to drown her had been dressed as a clown for no reason anyone could determine. Because, as Elisabetta had learned when she was thrown out of the house at the age of three by her brutal alcoholic one-eyed father who had made her work in the hard stone polishing factory when she was two, life did not make any sense. It was just horrible all the time. And so the best thing one could do was to scream for a very long time into two handfuls of melting snow and carry lots of different knives in your trunk. Because when life makes no sense, you can do whatever you want and get away with it. Like kill a clown for smiling too much, which is what she planned to do today as soon as she crossed the Irnagenserden Splendorblut Bridge. with the Dinner Party Show's tradition of celebrating literacy and the written word, we bring you an excerpt from one of this week's best-selling audiobooks. The Sweetie Pie, Chicken Fried, Traveling Clodhoppers, Jen Rickey Society of the Sisterhood's Wingding by Jeanette Lachance Merleton, former beauty queen and current wife of the man who runs her publishing company. My girlfriend, Petunia LaFleur, has an expression about marriage that I always repeat to my eldest daughter when she tries to get me to stop drinking in the morning. Petunia likes to say, if you're married to it, you best try to kill it with something bigger than a stick. And Petunia knows that of which she speaks. The four times she tried to kill her husband, she used, in sequence, a gardening hoe, hedge clippers, fireworks, and the family dog, Vidalia. And if you're starting to think Petunia might not be the type of person a nice southern belle like me should be spending her lunches with, allow me to point out that the four times she tried to kill her husband, it's because each time she caught him cheating on her with, in sequence, their housekeeper, her cousin, a Girl Scout, and a nun. As they say, times are still tough for rich old white ladies in the South who married for money. At least we have our typewriters, our gin, and our uppity daughters who all moved north to get them some East Coast education so they can come home for as long as it takes to write a condescending novel about what rageful, desperate relics we all are. Petunia hasn't gone to jail for all those times she tried to kill her husband, of course. Otherwise, she wouldn't be my best friend. She comes over every morning around 9 a.m. so we can discuss the Today Show and have some wine. Then around noon, we go out to lunch so we can talk about how good the wine was while we have some jeans. Then, come afternoon, it's time for an adventure. We'll either go out for a spin through the cane fields in her convertible and talk about our awful marriages for five or six chapters, or we'll dress in funny period costumes and head to the grocery store to get our eccentric on. Sometimes, we'll run across an old black lady who will teach us something magical about ourselves before she goes back to her side of town. Other 
times, we'll just meet supporting characters like our small-talking sidekick, Mammy Devro, who runs the wedding dress shop, which is ironic because she's never been married, and our mysterious friend, Lana Vertrovian, a delicate damaged beauty with many dark secrets and mantillas. Together, we make up the Sweetie Pie Chicken Fried Traveling Clodhoppers Gin Ricky Society of the Sisterhood Wing Ding. We have no idea what this means. It's just every word that came into our heads one day after we polished off a case of white Zinfandel. Doesn't it sound fun? Well, it should, because we're fun, too. Come on, y'all, turn the page and let's have lunch. Dinner Party Show's commitment to celebrating literacy and the written word, we bring you an exclusive excerpt from one of this week's best-selling audiobook titles, Tits, by Nicole DeSlesio. It's the first novel from a cast member of the hit reality show, Grease Chicks. A high-spirited comic romp about one soulless young woman's adventures in Hollywood as she is humored by agents and publicists who have no intention of signing her to a contract because they are fully aware she's three minutes away from the end of her 15 minutes of fame. Hey, look, girlfriend, I got tits. Nicole DeSlesio said to her sassy black friend, LaShondra Brown. Oh, girl, I'm a thing. Uh-huh. You should not, Kanye, hey? LaShondra said back because that's what she always said because she was black and sassy. Nicole and LaShondra were best friends because even though she wasn't black, Nicole was sassy too. It was a beautiful L.A. day, and the two best friends were walking down Rodea Drive in their juicy couture sweatpants carrying their cute chihuahuas in their Gucci dog travelers after having several wheatgrass shots after having lunch at Spago, where they ate a kale casserole and talked a lot on their cell phones because that's what hot chicks in L.A. do. Miss Thing Kanye, hey! LaShondra said. Oh my god, LaShondra, enough about Kanye already! Nicole said smilingly while brushing back some of her new rhinestone hair extensions that spelled out I love LA. There are other fine black men for a sassy black lady like you to marry, LaShondra. Men like Robin Thicke, for instance. Hey, black girl, what's wrong with your face? Oh, my God, LaShondra, I can't understand half of what you say. Whatevs. It's important for you to know Kanye just got Kim Kardashian preggers, which means she's going to get fat, and I'm going to destroy her in the ratings as soon as I get my own show here in L.A. where everything is so fun. Just then, they were interrupted in being cute and fabulous when a totally classy guy in a hot pink Maserati pulled up to the curb and stepped out wearing a leopard skin leisure suit and a rhinestone necklace that said chest hair expert. Nicole had her own distinctive style, like having big tits and mentioning them a lot. And she liked guys who had style too. But she had a very special soft spot for guys who wore rhinestones in public. It made them rebels and individuals, and it meant they had money to throw away on dumb crap like her. Hey, look, Nicole DeSlesio said fantastically. I got tits. You're doing they're very big and nice, the guy said. Oh, shit, Nicole thought difficultly. That accent, he's like an Arab or something. That'll never work. My father will murder him if he ever gets out of jail. So they kept walking. LaShondra said something black, but Nicole didn't understand it, so they kept walking some more. Nicole DeSlesio wasn't willing to sell out for just any man, not even all the agents she had slept with since landing in L.A. If she was going to teach the country and the bigger world at large how amazing she was, she would have to keep her integrity and stay true to the girl who had gotten drunk and waved her bloody tampon around like it was a pom-pom on national television for an audience of millions. It was important to be true to yourself. Her mother had taught her before cheating on her father again. And sometimes being true to yourself meant telling your black friend you couldn't understand a blooming word she said, so maybe it was time for her to get some friends who talk like her. And anyway, I hope that fancy-talking guy with the glasses the publisher set me up with shows up soon and fixes this mess because I'm only five pages in and I'm so bored already and I've got no idea what happens. 
Tired of dining alone? Enjoy the dinner party show with friends. Like us on Facebook and become one of our party people. Then, during our live shows on Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, you can join the conversation and post questions for Christopher, Eric, and their guests. During the week, drop in for tasty side dishes, show updates, and fun with the other party people. The Dinner Party Show. You are the life of our party. With so many changes happening in the publishing industry, The Dinner Party Show decided to visit a local bookstore to see how these changes were affecting the retail side of the business. Unfortunately, we made this visit with critic at large, Jordan Ampersand. Let's see who survived. This is a bookstore? Um, yeah, hello. Ingalls and Wilders is a totally famous bookstore chain that's been around forever. Yeah, I know, but it sounds like a penny arcade in here. Jesus, what the hell is... When the economy got bad, Ingalls and Wilders realized they could make more money off of remote-control helicopters for kids. Ah! Are those bullets? They're not real. He'll get up in a minute. Come on, Eric Shaw Quinn. I brought you here to show you what I like to read. Do they still have any books in here? All I see are e-reader displays and computer games and stuffed animals. My favorite books are all right here. Jordan, this is a magazine section. What do you mean? I mean, there are no books here. These are all magazines. These involve reading? See, look, look. Okay, okay. Gay teen skateboarder Temmie Johnson talks to Twink Beat about new balls-deep underwear. Christ, Jordan, I thought you brought me here to prove that you weren't dumb. No, I brought you here to prove that I read sometimes. Magazine. Okay, fine. Let's go to my other favorite section. What the hell is that then? Oh, that's a new toy. His name is Juarez, the cursing centipede. He teaches Spanish to children. By cursing at them? You have to start with what they want to know. He only curses at children. No, he curses at anyone who steps on him, and you stepped on him, so watch where you're going. This place is a pigsty. Here we go. Okay, the young adult section. I can do this. Harry Potter, Hunger Games. Are those the books you like to read, Jordan? No, those are for kids. I relate to most of what's in this section because it's about how to deal with a lot of hot guys liking you at once. Not exactly what I took away from Harry Potter, but okay. I didn't take away anything from Harry Potter except British boys are all gay and want to talk about their wands all the time. Hmm, uh, what am I doing here? Here's my favorite book of last year. It's called Stand Up, Girl. Huh, that actually sounds kind of gritty and realistic for the young adult section. Yeah, it's about a girl who is half owl who oh, has to enter okay. into a contest where a really hot warlock pulls on her right arm oh and a really hot centaur pulls on her left arm at the same time and she can't mm, lose her balance. Or else what? Her entire family will be fed to werewolves while she's forced to watch. Oh, my God. It's about finding your place in the world. It's torture porn for horny teenage girls. There's a new kind of porn? This sounds awful. Well, whatever. She doesn't lose. She's half owl. She just flies away. Don't step on that centipede again. You're being so hostile for no reason. I'm being attacked and yelled at by toys inside what is supposed to be a bookstore. Meanwhile, you've done absolutely nothing to prove to me that you're not dumb. I never said I was bringing you here to prove that I was not dumb. I like being dumb. Dumb people have more sex because they're not always thinking it all the way through. They're not like, maybe that's too close to the skin to be a real Prince Albert and you were on Grey's Anatomy one time, so why should I even care anyway? Jordan, what did you bring me here to prove? That dumb people read. Was that ever in dispute? Yes, you and Christopher always act like all this reading you do is what makes you smart, but what makes you guys smart is that you guys never have anything to do except like an internet radio show and writing novels and going on the road to promote them but whatever my point is that it's not the reading that makes you guys smart it's the sitting at home thinking all the time and I can't do that because people like me are always out having fun listen to me you flaccid little cocksleeve no one at the dinner party show has ever complained about you being dumb Dumb people can be lovely. They can be kind. They can be generous. No, the problem with you, Jordan Ampersand, is that you have the demeanor and the values of a mean girl from high school who has just been given a red wine enema. 
Oh my God, that happens in this book right here. Merlo, Millie's homecoming oh, song. This girl, Millie, is elected homecoming queen and then her rival gets a big bottle of Shut red wine. Shut up, Jordan. It's a story about the dangers of competition and substance abuse. And this is a question of values. It's your values that are screwed up, Jordan, not your brain. Prattle on all you want about your fake near-death experience and your phony newfound spirituality, but there is something deeply deeply wrong with the way you choose to view the world and the ideas that are truly going to challenge your worldview are not going to come from Twink Beat magazine or some cursing stuffed caterpillar named after a violent border town. They're going to come from books, books that make you consider yourself in relationship to the world as it is actually unfolding before you. What if I don't want my worldview challenged? Then you will be forever without the tools to stop me from challenging it. I've got this tool. Put put that down. This instant. Jordan, put that down. No, Jordan, Jordan, Jordan. Do you wish you had more time to read? Is there a stack of books piled on your nightstand or filling up the hard drive on your Kindle? These days, people are busier than ever posting meaningless shit about themselves on Facebook. So, if you're going to get any reading done, you need a solution that's going to make time, not take time. E-readers are great, but they only speed up the time it takes to get a book into your hands, not your brain. That's why we invite you to try Crystal Meth. A widely available stimulant that can be assembled in most home kitchens from a variety of household products that are sort of stringently regulated. Crystal methamphetamine has been shown to cause a marked increase in productivity for a period of three to four days before the user collapses into a scab-picking ball of paranoid delusions in one corner of their foul-smelling bedroom. But those three to four days can offer you an unlimited passport to the world of great literature. Watch the stack of novels on your nightstand disappear as they're replaced by a half-assembled transistor radio, a tub of Crisco, and a giant black dildo. Better yet, avid readers under the influence of crystal meth report an enhanced reading experience of some of the great classics of English literature. Who knew the old man in the sea was massacred by government drones? And did you know Moby Dick's mother was a fire-breathing dragon who could read the minds of insects? These are just some of the experiences readers on crystal meth have enjoyed before ending up in a mental health facility. So no more excuses. If you find yourself at another dinner party wishing you had more time to read, leave the party, call your cousin who ruined your other cousin's wedding with that insane toast that didn't make any sense, and see if he's got any good stuff. Crystal meth. Don't take the time. Just breathe deep and make the time. Well, listeners... What's your decision? Should we keep books? (laughs) Just kidding. What a silly question to begin with. This show is written, performed, and produced by two best-selling authors. So, if you're actually someone who's debating whether or not books should exist, go fuck yourself. And by the way, who are you and where do you live? Because we'd like to track you down and murder you. But in the meantime, this has been the Dinner Party Show's Summer Book Festival, and we're keeping books whether you fucking like it or not. Next week, it's the Jordan Ampersand Summer Special, Jordan on Trial. But until then, read a book, asshole.
I've been to a marvelous party. 